We're continuing on in our series in Joshua, Joshua chapter 11 tonight, Joshua 11, reading the whole chapter. This is the very word of God. And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard these things that he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were from the north and the mountains, and the plains south of Kinneroth, and the lowland, and in the heights of Dor in the west, to the Canaanites in the east, and in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite in the mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon in the land of Mitzvah. So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude, with very many horses and chariots, And when all these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. But the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow about this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom, and they attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon, to the the brook of Misropoth, and to the valley of Mitzpah eastward. They attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor and struck it with the sword, it struck its king with the sword, for Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms, and they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. Then he burned Hazor with fire. So all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hatzor only, which Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock, the children of Israel, took as booty for themselves, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them and they left none breathing. As the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, from Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir, even as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All the others they took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them, and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. And at that time Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. 
They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses, and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. Thus ends God's holy word. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we turn to you and look to you to do the work you alone can of taking your word and applying it to our hearts, working it in us, uh, working uh, in us by it, all that you would, uh, the, all that's pleasing to you. We pray you'd speak now, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. With Joshua chapter 11, we, we finally reach the end of the conquest, the final stage of Israel's conquest of the promised land. Uh, we've, we've seen the other victories of Israel as they've marched through the, uh, uh, through the, through, through the promised land, one after another. All their enemies have fallen. Um, we've, we've seen, you know, it started with Jericho, God's awesome, dramatic victory there at Jericho. We've, we've seen their defeat of the people at Ai. And then they moved south for the southern conquest, right? That's what we saw last time we were in Joshua, in Joshua chapter 10. And there they, they quickly defeat this alliance of southern kings that's come against them. And they destroy city after city there in this southern campaign. They, they wipe out army after army until the, the resistance in the south of the promised land is, is totally broken. And, and last time we saw how God comes down as the mighty warrior in Joshua 10. And he, he is hurling giant hailstones in the enemy. And the text says he, 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 he kills more than the Israelite soldiers killed by the sword. And we saw how the Lord caused the sun to stand still in the sky as the Amorites are defeated. Right? God's glorious victory over the southern part of the promised land, uh, delivering it into Joshua's hand. So that's all happened. And now we finally come to the northern part of the promised land, the final stage of the conquest in the northern campaign. Now, there's still a substantial amount of territory for the people to conquer here. And as we'll see in a few minutes, there's this massive army for them to defeat, uh, probably the largest force Israel's faced yet. There's still a lot of cities to take. But this chapter, interestingly, doesn't read like chapter 10 did. Chapter 10 was a dramatic account, a climactic action scene. Uh, of God's victory over uh, the Amorites. The, the battles there are, are told in detail. But, but here in the text, it's a lot briefer. It's not as elaborate. We're not given as much detail. The battle, the main battle is over in just a few verses. And the focus here then is, is quite different. The focus here is on something else, something that's really one of the most dominant themes in the whole book of Joshua, and that is the word of the Lord. It's, how, it's on how the Lord keeps his word to Joshua, to Israel. And, in response, how Joshua and Israel keep the Lord's word. How, how, how they respond to him. So the focus is on God's covenant promises fulfilled. And then the, the people's commandment, the, the commandments, the covenant commandments kept by the people. The point is that Israel wins the victory... They they inherit the promised land because God keeps his promises and in response because they keep his commandments. That's the focus of the text here. Now, uh, before we dive into this, I was thinking through the issue of application. How do we take, you know, this account, this historical account in the Old Testament 
and apply it to ourselves and our situation and our day? How do we do that uh, uh, well? How do we do that right? Of course, we read in texts like Romans 15, 4, that all God's Word, the Old Testament Scriptures, right, are written for our instruction, for our encouragement. For whatever was written in former days, Paul writes over there, Romans 15, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So that it's, it's for our encouragement, it's for our instruction, but how do we do this? You know, you know, some texts easier than others, but, but what do we do with especially historical narrative? How, how does that encourage us and instruct us? Uh, one way you can, you can draw application is just to make a straight line from uh, the Old Testament to ourselves. So we read here, Joshua has courage in his fight, therefore draw the line to us, we should have courage in our struggle, whatever it might be. Uh, That's called exemplaristic application, where you say, here's an example in the Old Testament. It's a good example. Let's follow it. Or if it's a bad example, let's not follow it. Uh, And and there's a valid way to make that kind of application, and we should be drawing some uh, types of application like that from the Old Testament. God does give us examples of faith, examples of obedience, examples of great failure for us to learn from. Uh, but, but we shouldn't just apply like that, and, and we probably shouldn't primarily apply the Old Testament like that. Uh, as we read it, we should, we should first, and not draw the line from the Old Testament to ourselves, you know, a direct line like that, but draw the line from the Old Testament to Christ. Because, you know, we read over in Colossians that the, 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 the Old Testament is a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Or we read uh, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says to his disciples, it's all about me. It's all pointing forward to me. So really, we should read the Old Testament by, by look at the Old Testament, draw the line to Christ, then draw the line to ourselves in Christ. So, for example, we, we would see Joshua, we'd see his exemplary leadership, and we'd say, that's pointing to Christ. Joshua led the people courageously into the earthly promised land. Jesus leads the people courageously into the heavenly promised land. And then we complete the line from Jesus to ourselves. We say, therefore, as we trust in Christ, we too can courageously fight the good fight of the faith, strive to enter the heavenly promised land. So that's just, that's just sort of an aside as I was thinking about, uh, you know, how we make application of the Old Testament. But let's, let's bring it to bear here. If, if, well, if we do that with this text, it suddenly becomes very relevant to us. It becomes more than just an example of, uh, of uh, uh, courage. It, it becomes relevant and important, in fact, crucially important to us and to the Christian life. Here in Joshua, we read about how Israel wins the victory, inherits the promised land. Why? Because God keeps his promise to them, and because they, in response, keep his covenant commands. They keep his word. So if we we draw a line from that to Christ, and then to ourselves, we say this. "The, The church wins the victory and enters the heavenly inheritance because God in Christ keeps his promises to us. And because we, in Christ keep his commandments. It's a message we need, brothers and sisters. It's a relevant message. Over in Hebrews 4, 11, it says this, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. 
Right, the author of the Hebrews is doing something similar there to what we're doing here, looking at this uh, theme in Joshua. He's saying, we need to be like the, like the Israelites in the Old Testament, striving to enter our rest, but it's a heavenly rest, and we're striving in Christ. So we are to be a striving people, a striving church, a church uh, at, at war, fighting the good fight of the faith. Right? Picture a, a runner straining towards the finish line and giving it everything. That's what we are to be like, pressing on towards, uh, towards our inheritance and glory. So here's, here's our point for this evening. Uh, God in Christ has promised to bring us to the heavenly inheritance. He's kept it. He will keep that promise. And he gives us everything we need in Christ to follow Christ faithfully, to keep Christ's word So let's unpack this as we walk through the text together. Three headings to organize our thoughts around. The first is verses 1 through 5, the might of Israel's enemies. The might of Israel's enemies. Verse 1 in the text here opens by telling us about how this king, Jabin, king of Hazor, is reacting to some news he's just gotten. It's not good news uh, for him, anyway. Uh, he's, he's heard the news about how the conquest has gone in the south of Canaan. And it's interesting, this is exactly the same way chapters 9 and 10 started, with Israel's enemies hearing about what God has done uh, to, to their enemies through, through Israel and getting really scared and trying to come up with a way of escape. So we saw the Gibeonites in chapter 9. They, they hear what, what God has done through Joshua, and they say, all right, let's, let's, let's try to find a way out. They try deception. And then uh, the southern kings in chapter 10, they hear what, what, uh, what God has done through Joshua, through Israel, and they try to put together an army to, to resist them. And, and both those efforts failed, ultimately. Well, the king of Hazor here in chapter 11 decides that the best bet is uh, armed resistance, so he, he goes out and he gathers this uh, coalition together to, to, to resist Israel. He probably has a lot more time than the southern kings did um, because, you know, as he's hearing this news from the southern campaign of Joshua in the south of Canaan, he has time to prepare. This was not a matter of days, probably a matter of months as the people of Israel uh, uh, pushed through the southern part of Canaan. So the king of Hazor probably takes advantage of this. He sends out to the surrounding kings, the surrounding cities, and the text says very clearly, it spells it out for us uh, to show us how many armies he's able to bring together um, the text says, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were from the north, in the mountains, in the plains, south of Kinneroth, in the lowland, and in the heights of Dor, in the west, to the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite in the mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon, and the land of Mizpah. The text spells it out. It makes it so clear, this great force he's bringing together. And then just in case we're not sure how large this is, how many people this is, verse 4 says, So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that's on the seashore in multitude, with many horses and chariots. So this isn't a thrown-together ragtag resistance. This is a carefully planned and well-equipped force, more than you can count, outnumbering the sand of the sea, more than the armies of Israel. And, the text says, they've got horses and chariots, the, the tanks of the ancient world. They have more advanced technology, better weapons. On a human level, you look at this and you say, it's not stacking up in favor of Israel. The text is, is trying to make this point clear for us. It's trying to see, show us how uneven this, this fight looks from an earthly 
perspective. We're supposed to, to look at the might of Israel's enemies and say, wow. Why would the text do this? Well, on just a, on a storytelling level, it makes sense, right? Think of a, a good war movie, and the, when the good guys are outnumbered, right? And it builds the suspense and your interest, and, and, and it uh, just makes it all that much better when they win the victory. We love an underdog, don't we? But I don't think it's just that the author wants to tell us a good story. I think he's making not just a literary point, but a theological point. And I think it's, it's this. He's, he's saying to Israel, he's saying to us, God is saying to us, your enemies are mightier than you. They outnumber you. They outwit you. They outmatch you. From the perspective of this world, the outcome should be obvious. Therefore, everything about the fight you're about to enter depends not on you, but on God. We see this all throughout Israel's history, don't we? So many examples. Uh, we've seen it already in Joshua. So many examples of how uh, the enemy looks overwhelming and, and, and massive and, and unable to be defeated, but God comes and he fights for his people. And this lesson that our enemy is stronger than we are on our own is a lesson that we need as well, brothers and sisters. If we're going to depend on God, first we have to realize that we can't depend on ourselves. So we need to see the enemy that we're up against. We need to see the might of our enemy. Who, who, are, who are the enemies that we face, that the church faces? Well, there's Satan, the powers of darkness, with supernatural strength, power far beyond ours. There's the world, the present evil age, which is opposed to the church. And the, the authority, the power it wields, the influence and the resources that the, the, the world has. There's much more power and influence than we and the, than the church have. And then, of course, there's the flesh. Right? These are the great enemies that we face. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Right? We face indwelling sin, the old habits of sin, which still, even after we've come to Christ, feel like they have so much power and strength to compel us to do that which we don't want to do, as Paul says. And Romans 7. We need to see these things. We need to acknowledge their might and our weakness in the face of them. Not so that we get discouraged and give up, but so that we stop depending on ourselves and so that we depend instead on God. Just thinking over this, it brought to mind the words of Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He, he says this, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Luther's saying, if we relied on our strength, yes, we would be, we would be toast. But we're relying on the one that God has raised up for us. And so we won't be afraid of all the power of hell. So that's how the text starts. It says, look at the strength of your enemy so that you don't depend on yourself. But then the text shifts its focus from uh, the focus on the might of Israel's enemies to the might of Israel's armies in the Lord. And this is our second heading, the might of Israel's armies in the Lord. And we're looking here at verse 6 through the rest of the chapter, verses 6 through 23. Let's start with verse 6. It's a wonderful verse, a glorious verse. Look at it with me if you have the text there. It says this, But the Lord said to Joshua, 
which is just a glorious thing that God speaks to Joshua. We saw this before, I think it was in chapter 10, where, where uh, we see the might of the enemy, we see the, 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 the situation, and we're wondering how, you know, how this can be resolved for good for God's people. And then the text says, but the Lord spoke to Joshua. Those words just... I've, we've had all this buildup of all these kings and all these armies from all around the northern part of Canaan, but then it just all gets cut off, kind of squashed by this verse. But the Lord spoke to Joshua. As though there's no contest between the Lord's word and the noise of the enemy. The enemy could be ten times as strong, ten times as many as they are. It wouldn't matter because the Lord speaks to Joshua and he's about to bring his salvation. And just as a, just as a, a brief aside, that should also be the effect on God, for, that God's word has in our lives, shouldn't it? That, that as, we, as we look at and consider the might of the enemies and obstacles that we face, as we, as we consider our sin and, and, and the habits of indwelling sin that we have, um, that we look at these, what appear to us to be insurmountable problems and obstacles that we face, that the church faces, we should, we should remember, but the Lord has spoken to us. Right, yes, we should see the might of the enemy, but then we should go and read God's word. And as it were, shut the door on, the, on that and, and listen to, to God and what he has to say. To put everything back in proper perspective, to see how mighty God is, how weak our enemies are in comparison to him. So the Lord speaks to Joshua. He tells him here not to be afraid. Here's verse 6, the rest of it. He says, The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. God promises a total victory, complete victory there. Maybe he's addressing Joshua's particular concerns as he says the horses and chariots that you're afraid of, that Israel doesn't have, that maybe you wish they did, they're not going to be an issue. Don't worry about them, Joshua. Tomorrow, this time, those horses will be lame, the chariots will be burned. And then in the next few verses here, we see this unfold. The Israelites take this, this great coalition army by surprise. Uh, verse 8 tells us the Lord gives them the victory. And then the verses that follow are really almost matter of fact. It's as though uh, once God has promised Israel's victory, it's just a matter of, of time. It's just a matter of connecting the dots, and it's done. And we don't really need to hear the details about how it turned out after God has promised victory, do we? We know that if he's said it's going to happen, it will. So verses 8 to 12 walk through this victory. Just as God said, the enemies are destroyed. Just as God said, the horses are hamstrung and the chariots burned. Just as God commanded, the Israelites left none remaining. Just as God promised, Joshua put the king of Hazor to death with his sword. They destroy the city of Hazor. The rest of the cities they devote to destruction, those in them, then they plunder them. And then verse 15 wraps up the whole account. As the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So everything has happened just according to God's plan, exactly according to his command and promise. The mightiest force that the Canaanites could pull together to fight against Israel was nothing to them. Israel just rolls over them. Then the text goes on in the rest of the chapter, verses 60 to 23, to summarize Joshua's other victories. 
We're told in verse 20 that the Lord made sure that all the inhabitants of the land don't repent so that they can all be destroyed according to his word. And then there's this really interesting note in verses uh, 21 and following about how Joshua defeats the Anakim. Who are the Anakim? Well, if you remember back in Numbers 13, the people of Israel come to the promised land and they're terrified of the Anakim, of, of the giants who are in the land. Listen to these words back in Numbers 13 from the faithless spies there. The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, right, the Anakim, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. So we seem to them. This is the great fear in Israel's eyes in that first generation that, that loses faith and won't go into the promised land. And here in Joshua 11, they're a footnote. Right? After all the other battles have been won, the writer basically says, oh yes, and we took care of the Anakin too. The Lord wiped them out. You see how the Lord is with Israel, gives them the victory here. Nothing for them to fear. What are we to make of this, brothers and sisters? As we look at the state of the church in the world, whether we're, whether we're talking you know, on a large scale or on a small scale, the issues of our own congregation and our own community, as, as, as I look also at the spiritual warfare that's going on in my own life, I, I don't see the decisiveness and the complete victory that Israel saw there in the conquest. That's what I want, but, but, but I'm not seeing that. Is there something wrong with me, with us, that, that we're not seeing that? Should we see the church winning victories, indefeatable, the, the same matter-of-fact inevitability that we see here in Joshua? Doesn't Jesus say, Matthew 16, 18, the gates of hell won't prevail against the church? But why does it look like so often they do? If the armies of Old Testament Israel were undefeatable, shouldn't the armies of the New Covenant administration be that much more undefeatable as they go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit to advance the kingdom of God? So why does it feel like the church is so often losing ground? Or that we ourselves and our personal struggle for holiness are losing ground? To borrow a phrase from Tolkien, why does it feel like we're fighting the long defeat? Well, here are, I think, a few answers to that question. I think it's an important question. How do we answer it? Well, first, we shouldn't confuse the fight the church is called to and the fight that Jesus has won. Right? In a, in a very real sense, the conquest has already been completed. We could draw the line of application from Joshua's conquest, conquest in, uh, in, in the book of Joshua to Jesus and say, He did it. It's done. The enemies have been crushed and defeated. He's single-handedly, all alone, against all the powers of hell and darkness. He crushed them. He defeated them. He, he opened heaven for us, the heavenly promised land. Paul writes that we are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Our heavenly promised land is already secured. And so no struggle in this life can call any of that into question. So if we keep that in mind... Right? Not to confuse the fight the church is called to and the fight Christ has already won. Then I think we won't be so discouraged. But remembering Christ has won it. Even though things now uh, are a struggle and feel like a long defeat at times, Christ has won the final 
victory. And it's just a matter of time. And he will inevitably bring his kingdom to pass. That's, that's the first answer I think we have to this question. The second is this. We should remember that God moves in a mysterious way, as the hymn puts it. According to his wisdom, he gives different seasons. In the history of the church, we see this, don't we? In our own personal histories, we see seasons of, of backsliding, seasons of reform, seasons of suffering, seasons of peace and flourishing. And church history shows all these things. Our calling is not to fret and kick against the season God has placed us in, but to fight the good fight of faith in the time and place he's assigned us to. He's put us here in Limington in 2021, and that's our calling, to be faithful here and now not to question his providence in these things. Israel didn't always see glorious, inevitable victories. The third thing, we should remember, there's two perspectives to the fight that we're in. We see this all through the book of Revelation, for example. We see, we see God's perspective, the heavenly perspective, that the kingdom's advancing, the church is winning, the elect are being brought in, Satan's being defeated. And we also see the camera angle from this earth, the worldly, earthly perspective, that the church is suffering, struggling, fading, almost looking to be sometimes uh, eliminated. We also see this idea in Paul's writing. Listen to what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, 7-10. But we have this treasure, treasure of the glorious gospel that we've been given, that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the dead body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul is saying, we are following the pattern of Christ. Suffering, then exaltation. Humiliation, then glory. And that is where this good fight of the faith happens. That's what it feels like. In the words of J.I. Packer, weakness is the way in the Christian life. So, brothers and sisters, we are the church militant, not yet the church triumphant. So don't lose heart in what this, you know, this does feel sometimes like the long defeat. Don't lose heart. Or be discouraged by the, the, you know, the apparent setbacks, the, the loss of influence by resistance to the gospel that we see. Christ has won the victory. He'll make us able, in the end, to overcome. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now the question, uh, the remaining question here is, is this. How do we carry out this good fight of the faith? How, how do we strive to enter this heavenly promised land that we're called to strive to enter? What's the method? What's the means? What, what, do we, what do we do here? And we see in our final point that it's according to the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. We've already said this. It's the main theme. It's the, kind of the main actor in the, the chapter. It's the protagonist, if you will. It's the, 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 the chorus that keeps coming back. We see it in verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, verse 12, 15, 20, and 23. So it peppers the whole chapter. And the writer, just, he won't let the idea go. 
He won't let us read the chapter and fail to see that this is the, this is the main idea. And there's, there's, two aspects, there's two aspects to this word of the Lord here that we see. The first is the aspect of Joshua's obedience to God's word. We see over and over here, Joshua keeps God's word. Does everything God tells him to do. Every command God gives him, he does. In verse 6, for example, God commands Joshua, take courage. He sends Joshua on the offensive, and Joshua does it. He takes courage. He goes and he fights according to God's word in, Joshua, in verse 7. In verse 9, it's put explicitly, So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. Same thing is said in verse 12, basically. Joshua utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Verse 15, just in case we missed it. And the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. The Hebrew there literally reads, he did not remove a word of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. What is the number one characteristic of Joshua's leadership of the people? What's primary about his, his military and leadership strategy? What's he known for? His prowess on the field of battle, his, his, his great uh, uh, strategy in war? No, he's known for fastidious attention to detail and keeping God's law and, 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 and wedding himself to God's word and not moving from it an inch. He doesn't remove a word of anything God tells him to do. That's the key to Joshua's leadership. And the key to Israel's victory through Joshua, their leader led by an absolute commitment to keep God's commandments. And isn't it so clear this points us to Christ? Right? We need a captain who is totally committed to the commandments of God so that he can secure the promised land for us. And that's exactly what we saw earlier when we read in Matthew 4 of how Christ uh, there goes head-to-head against the devil and wins the victory. How? Not by just, uh, you know, by sheer force destroying the devil, but by obedience to God's word. No temptation can get a handle on him. Nothing sticks to him. His heart is so devoted to God and his word that nothing can, can pull him away from that. And that's wonderful for us to know. Because our hearts are so quickly taken away from God's word. So quickly uh, we, we shift from what God has called us to. But not our Lord Jesus. And by this obedience, he's opened heaven, the internal inheritance for us. He's won it by his obedience. Secondly, here we should also see that as the Israelites were supposed to see Joshua's obedience and follow his example, so we are supposed to follow the example and the leadership of our captain. We don't put our confidence in our, how, how well we follow our captain. We put the confidence in our captain and his obedience. But we also need to see that we are following him and also obeying him. We, we put our confidence in the fact Jesus obeyed perfectly in my place, won the victory, uh, uh, secured the inheritance by his obedience, but then we need to say, Lord, help me follow his leadership. Right? We have union with Christ so that we can live in imitation of Christ. This is the method of our warfare. It's to follow Christ and obedience to the law of God. This is the heart of the conflict that we face. It's, it's to be faithful to God's word and obey his commands. In the big things, in the little things, in the important things, in the trivial things, in everything, a fastidious attention to the heart and scope 
of God's commandments. This is the good fight of the faith. This is the this is the method then of our war, our, our, our warfare here. It's it's we, we we fight this fight of the faith by dependence on the obedience of Christ in imitation of Christ. That's the method. What's the means? If that's the method, if that's if that's the way we go about this, how do we do it? What's the means? Well, it's God's commitment to His own words, His His fulfillment of His promises. These verses we just surveyed about Joshua keeping God's word also talk to us about how God keeps His word to us, to His people. Joshua acts according to God's word, we read, right? That's according to God's command and God's promise. God says, this is what will happen, and it happens. God's commitment to his word, we see. This comes through with, especially clearly in verse 6, where God promises Joshua victory. The victory that comes, comes because of God's promise, not because of Joshua's prowess. We see it too in verse, verse 20. The Lord, by his power, hardens the hearts of the kings of Canaan so that he can uh, utterly destroy them all, even as he promised Moses, the text tells us. And then again, verse 23. Joshua's conquest is credited to the Lord. Listen to verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses. God's promise, God's fulfillment of his promise is what secures the victory for Israel. And it's as Israel depends on that promise, hangs on to that promise, that they're able to obey the Lord. And again, that's exactly how it works with us too, isn't it? We're faithful when we trust the Lord's faithfulness. We follow His commands according to the measure we trust His promises. You see here how how not one word of God's fails and everything He said to Israel and Joshua his promises are so sure. And they're just as sure to us, aren't they? We've, we've, seen, uh, we've, we've seen that proved so uh, uh, perfectly and clearly in Christ. God has kept His Word. He's sent His Son. He's delivered us from our sins. Christ has entered. He's opened heaven for us. It's all a, it's all a finished fact that the new creation has begun, that Christ has entered the heavenly inheritance. And so it's only a matter of time till the church is brought home to him in victory, to our final rest. And that's, that's what we need. As we are in the trenches of the good fight of the faith and, and are in the midst of discouragement and setback and mighty obstacles, not one of his promises will fail. Not one of his promises. Every single word will come true. So brothers and sisters, let's hold fast to our captain. Let's follow our Savior. Let's trust His Word and keep His commands. That by His grace, we might continue pressing on to our heavenly promised land together. Let's pray.